Hello everybody, good to see you all. Welcome to the 35th live episode of Ask Abhijit. As you know, today we discuss history, Indian history mostly and geopolitics as well. So let me see who all is there. I can see Pranav Kumar, hello. Raman Vadva, Saurabh Verma, Aditya Singh, Haj Shah, Shankhajit, Pranav, Madhav, Akshar Bakshi, Anthony, Jainam, Rishu Jaiswal, Neeraj Kumar, Anshu, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Rajdeep, Albert Einstein, Divesh, Sovik, Prashant, Rajat. Hello, everybody. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. So let us begin with the questions. So I'm going to take a few questions, about 15-20 questions. And after that, if there is time, I will take a few live questions from you all. So let me begin right away with question number one. Okay, this is from Monica. Okay, uh, who really won the battle of Haldi Ghati? Because according to the history textbooks, Akbar won, but there was neither any surrender nor any capture. So how did Akbar win this battle? You would like to know my perspective on this. So the battle of Haldi Ghati was, as we know, between uh, the kingdom of Maharana Pratap in Rajasthan, as we know and between the uh, expansionist Mughal, so-called Mughal Empire of Emperor Akbar. So Akbar was a Turk, he was a Turkic invader, and he was the king of the Mughal Empire. He was trying to expand his influence in territory, and he wanted Maharana Pratap to become his vassal. And Maharana, and, and several other Rajput chieftains, who were all fragmented and divided, had accepted Akbar's suzerainty. And Maharana Pratap, who was the uh, most prominent of the Rajput kings of the time, he refused to accept Akbar's suzerainty over him. And that is what caused this conflict. So Akbar could not tolerate a Rajput king defying him. And therefore, he sent an expedition to defeat Maharana Pratap and to annex the territory of Maharana Pratap. And that is what brings us to the Battle of Haldi Ghati. So this was fought between the army of Maharana Pratap and the invading force, invading army of the Turks. I mean, Akbar was not present in this battle himself. He had sent his, some of his vassals. Uh, I think the head of the Mughal army was himself a Rajput. He was himself a Rajput. And he was related in some way to Maharana Pratap, but they found themselves on opposite sides of the of the conflict. So that is eventually what had happened in India after uh, many centuries of Turkic, of repeated Turkic invasions. So India became slowly fragmented in this manner. So it was basically Rajput against Rajput in a, in a sense. So this battle was fought in this narrow pass called Haldi Ghati. It is called Haldi Ghati because the soil is bright yellow. It looks like turmeric. So this is where the battle was fought. The Rajputs under Maharana Pratap were outnumbered at least four to one. So for every soldier they had, the Turks or the invaders had at least four soldiers more. So that's how it was. Now, there is a great deal of confusion about uh, the outcome of this battle. What is clear is that there was no uh, concrete outcome in this battle. That, that is what one gets to hear from if we, if we examine multiple sources. Uh, 
now to understand what really happened and and how to interpret the conclusion of the battle we have to understand what were the military objectives of the two forces the military objective and the overall objective of akbar's force was to either defeat maharana pratap and kill him and annex the territory or to defeat maharana pratap and force him to accept akbar as the as his sovereign king that was the objective overall objective of akbar's invading force and the objective of maharana pratap's uh, force and maharana pratap himself was to resist the invasion of akbar and it was to continue to be independent and to continue to defy the turkic invader of india so at the end of the battle we know that the uh, that the force of maharana pratap did not surrender that is 100% uh, a fact they did not surrender and they were not uh, destroyed his army was not destroyed and the moguls were not able to force maharana pratap to accept akbar as his sovereign king and they were not able to kill him either and for 21 more years maharana pratap kept on defying the moguls and therefore it is ex- perfectly clear that the moguls did not achieve any of their objectives that they wanted to achieve from um, after as a result of this battle so if we look at it from that perspective it is clear that maharana pratap's force came out on top he was able to prevent the moguls from achieving what they wanted to achieve that much is extremely clear it is crystal clear the moguls did not succeed in achieving their either their military objective or their political objectives and from that perspective it is very clear that maharana pratap came out on top now the actual military engagement was just a battle what really matters what is really consequential is the entire military campaign because a military campaign is a, is an extension of politics it has political objectives and the political objectives is really the lens through which we need to see every battle and every military campaign so the political objective of, of akbar was clear it was to either kill and destroy maharana pratap and his army or to force them to accept him as their emperor and he failed on both counts and therefore from this from from this overall large perspective it is clear that maharana pratap succeeded and akbar failed so that is how i see it historians tend to look at battles in isolation what happened in this battle in this 4 to 6 hours engagement who won this it doesn't matter a military campaign has lots and lots and lots of battles and skirmishes right and it is the overall end of end outcome that really matters so the outcome was very clear that maharana pratap continued to remain independent he continued to defy akbar the mogul and the moguls did not achieve their objectives so that is very clear and and i don't see this as revisionism it is simply looking at the events from a larger lens not from a tactical lens but from a strategic and grand grand strategy lens and from the obje- from the perspective of military and uh, political uh, strategy so it's clear that maharana pratap succeeded and akbar failed Pritam asks if geopolitics is a sport then who is the umpire and what is the trophy yes geopolitics can be looked upon as a sport like i have said in the past geopolitics is a sport who is the umpire 
well in the sport of geopolitics the biggest player is the umpire the strongest and biggest player is the guy who gets to set all the rules so today we talk about this rules based international order right what rules are these is there some court or some 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 written law or anything no the rules based international order is the rules that the americans have set and that's what we talk we talk about as the rules based international order it is all about what the strongest player uh, puts across as the rules so the umpire is the strongest player if you are strong enough you get to set the rules and you you get to uh, to adjudicate adjudicate who is following the rules who is not following the rules who gets to be rewarded who gets to be punished that's how it works and what is the trophy the trophy is power influence resources wealth basically the trophy is the whole world so that is what geopolitics is it is a sport the most powerful player is the umpire and the trophy is everything that's available in the world it's the entire world itself garki says i was pondering over this it's a very long question i think there are two questions in here if ashoka was so bad bad so cruel that he was even termed as chand ashok then why was he trained under the supervision of acharya chanakya that's question number 1 well gargi uh, ashok was not trained under the supervision of acharya chanakya vishnugupta chanakya was the mentor of ashok's grandfather chandragupta maurya right chandragupta maurya's son was bindusar and bindusar's son was ashok so ashok most likely did not even know vishnugupta chanakya he was not trained under vishnugupta chanakya it was Chandragupta Maurya Ashok's grandfather who was trained by and mentored by Vishnugupta Chanakya so i hope that clear clarifies that confusion the other question is if the turks the moguls came from uzbekistan then what was this obsession of theirs with the persian language why did they impose persian and propagate it in bharat instead of their own mother tongue or arabic what special value did farsi hold in their eyes that's an excellent question gargi so yeah it's true the the uh, moguls were actually turks their language was most likely chagatai which is a which is an extinct turkic language so this their mother tongue was a turkic language one of the turkic languages and yet they used persian as the court language and the official language in india so how did this come about that's a fascinating question so here's what happened uh the original uh, turkic invader i mean of the the so called mughal dynasty was babur his son was the extremely weak and ineffective humayun right humayun was uh, well he had no great qualities he was quite kind of a loser right so humayun was defeated by sher shah suri sometime in the 16th century sher shah suri was an Indi- i mean yeah you can call him an indian he was born i think in bihar i think he was a pashtun but yeah pashtuns are indians well they originally are of indian ethnicity so sher shah suri was a pashtun he kicked this foreign invader uh humayun out of india so humayun was forced to run for his life and he went into exile in iran he sought refuge in safavid iran and the shah of iran was tahmasp i think at the time 
so what happened was that he spent some time in Iran under the uh, refuge of the Shah of Iran, Tahmasp. And this Shah of Iran, he agreed to help Humayun recapture uh, Delhi and uh, the, the kingdom he had lost in India. So after some time, the uh, reinvasion of India happened. And uh, Humayun was... So what happened was that Sher Shah Suri, he was in power in Delhi only for five years or so. And he got killed in some stupid uh, gunpowder or something accident. So he did not die in war. He got killed because of some accident. And that's what enabled Humayun to uh, invade India again. And he came into India with the help of the Persians. And he, he brought with him a great deal of Persian uh, uh, bureaucrats and officials and all that. Right? And these bureaucrats and officials, see, the Persians are very close linguistically and ethnically to India. The Turks are very different. They are very different from Indians and from Persians as well. So the Persians were well versed with India. They, they understood India quite well. So Humayun came into India, reinvaded India and was able to re recapture Delhi and his uh, lost kingdom. And he basically um, employed all these Persians as his staff as his bureaucracy and officers and all that. And that's how Persian was introduced as the court language of the Mughals. The Turks were basically illiterates. They did not know how to administer a great uh, civilization, something as complex as India. The Persians had a lot of experience in that. The Persians uh, themselves, as I said, they, they understood India quite well. So it was... Uh, Ben beneficial for Humayun to employ these persons as his officers, his staff, his bureaucrats, his officers and all that. And that practice continued in the reign of Humayun's son Akbar. So, uh, and it, then it continued throughout the Mughal Empire. Slowly they became more and more Persianized. Uh, many of these Mughals uh, had Indian mothers, right? Some of them also had Persian mothers and so on. So eventually they became more Indianized and, and Persianized. And uh, they lost slowly over the generations uh, whatever Turkic heritage they had in, in, to some extent, to some extent. So that is the reason why the Persian language was introduced into India as the court language and the language of the officials. But the, the thing is that it only remained as a court language and the language of the officials. It never found its way into uh, the com common uh, vocabulary of the Indians, right? Indians still don't really use Persian even after several, three or four, about two or three centuries of uh, Turkic occupation in which Persian was the court language. Yes, yeah, certain words have infiltrated into the so-called Hindi vocabulary. This mongrel language called Urdu is a mixture of Hindi and some. it has some Turkic loan words and it has a great deal of Persian vocabulary. But the overall grammatical structure and the roots of the language are very much in Prakrit and Sanskrit. So that is the only consequence the uh, the Persian language had in India. That is the birth of this strange hybrid Urdu language. So that, in short, is how Persian came to be the official court language of the so-called Mughals. Divyaraj asks, 
how could you say that the Scythians were or are Indian origin peoples? And who are the descendants of the great Kushans in the modern days? Yes, I have said, I mean, many people ask me from time to time in the comments, I mean, how can you say that the Scythians were Indian origin people? And they even say the same about the Kushans. How can you say the Kushans were Indian origin people? They were Huns or they were whatever, Turks or whatever. So this is the problem with the Indian education system. They put all kinds of misinformation into people's heads. And as you grow up learning all this, you believe in these things strongly. And when you are presented with the real facts, you oppose it vigorously. So here's why I say that the Scythians are Indian origin people. Let's look at the hard evidence. Lots of Scythian burials have been found throughout Central Asia, north of the Himalayas, even in parts of Eastern Europe, etc. The Scythians, are, they, they basically lived across the entire length and breadth of Eurasia from Eastern, from Eastern Europe, which is Ukraine, etc., all the way into uh, the so-called region of Xinjiang in present-day China. So this was the entire expanse of, the, of what was once known as Kithya. Right, so there are lots of burials that have been found by archaeologists, Scythian burials, and uh, these are found in the frozen steppes and all that of of Eurasia, and therefore the bodies are very well preserved, and they have been able to extract DNA out of these ancient Scythian burials and analyze the DNA and all that, and it is found that the overwhelming majority of the Scythian males whose DNA has been analyzed, they happen to belong to the R1A patrilineal lineage. Now, the R1A patrilineal lineage is of Indian origin. It is, it is found in the highest concentrations in India, in the Indian subcontinent, and also in Eastern Europe, in the region of Poland, Germany, etc., and uh, the Slavic regions of Europe. But the homeland, the place the geographical area where it has the highest diversity, R1A, is India, right? And very soon, all of this is going to be scientifically published and it will be beyond any doubt. As of today, many geneticists still try to uh, dispute the fact that R1A is of Indian origin. But in a couple of years, it is all going to be set to rest. Okay, so the R1A patrilineal genetic lineage, the R1A haplogroup is of Indian origin and the overwhelming majority of the male Scythian burials that we find belong to this R1A patrilineal lineage. I think about 9 out of 10 are of this lineage. Right, so it is clearly that it is very clear that these Scythians were very closely related to the Indian populations. Further, when we analyze the DNA of an ancient uh, from an ancient burial or any person, you can actually tell what are their uh, physical characteristics. You can tell what's the color of their eyes, the color of their skin, the color the color of their hair, etc. And we find that the Scythians overwhelmingly were light they had light skin light brown skin not white skin like the europeans they had light brown skin they had brown eyes and they had dark hair okay so once again these are not europeans in popular culture the scythians are depicted as white skinned people with either blonde hair or red hair and blue eyes that is completely wrong they look like indians right so this is the reason why I say that the Scythians were Indian origin people. We know it is recorded in our ancient literature 
that Indians went outside India in great migrations, in great waves, multiple times. And they founded the ancient, very ancient kingdoms in Central Asia, Uttar Kuru, Uttar Madra, all that. And these people are all related to Indians because they are the descendants of ancient Rigvedic people who went out of India. It is very well attested in our ancient literature. And we find that corroborated in the genetics very clearly. And we also know that the Scythians reinvaded India about 2100 or so years ago or 2200 years ago. Right? The Indo-Scythians. Now, it is well known that there was absolutely no... Uh, friction or conflict between the Scythian population that came into India and settled down in India. I mean, if they had been of a different ethnicity, if they had been of a different culture, then you would have large-scale rioting and lots of ethnic and cultural strife and religious strife. But there was none of that. The Scythians invaded India, right? They were able to establish kingdoms in Western India, and they basically just settled down and assimilated harmoniously with the people of India. And today we don't even know who has how much Scythian uh, origin or not because they were the same ethnicity as the Indians. And they, obviously it's very clear they spoke a very similar language and they had a very similar culture. It's known that the Scythians were sun worshippers. The Greeks have recorded that the primary god of the Scythians was the sun. They worshipped the sun. And they had other gods as well. So all of this taken together shows you that the Scythians were ethnically, genetically, culturally, linguistically, religiously, the very much the same as the Indians. The Indians, the ancient Indians regarded the Scythians as Mlecha people, Mlecha, which means that they were the descendants of Vedic people, but they had ceased, they had stopped uh, following all the rituals of the Vedas properly. So they did follow some rituals, but they, they were lax in that. And therefore, they were not regarded as proper uh, civilized people. And that's why they were called Mlechas. And I'm sure the Scythians had intermingled with some Central Asian peoples as well. So there was some, some mixing of the DNA. But they were overall, as, with, as the DNA evidence shows, very much Indians. Right? So today, I am sure there's a great deal of uh, pop, a significant population in northern Western India who have some Scythian, Indo-Scythian ancestry. But there's no way of telling because the Scythian DNA was this or more or less the same as the, the DNA of the Indians. And the same goes for the Kushans. The Kushans were the easternmost Scythians. That's what, how you can look at them. Right? And they also, if you look at the uh, ancient mummies that you find in the Tarim River Basin, those ancient burials, the Tokari and Tushar people, who are basically the ancestor of the Kushans, if you look at these those people, they look kind of European. They have fair skin. Many of them have uh, either blonde or, re or red hair. And yet their DNA is, is overwhelmingly R1A. And if you look at their culture and all, we find swastikas and various Indian, um, Indian religious symbology and all that. And if you look at the language of the Tokarians, it is, if you, if you see the script, it, you know how it was arranged? It was arranged as ka, ka, ga, ga, na, that way. So it was very much Indian. The culture, the language, and even the genetics was very much Indian. You find people in northern India, in Kashmir, in in uh, in the Chitral region, which is now Pakistan, etc. People who have blonde hair and red hair and all that. People who have blue eyes, but they are very much Indian. So the Indian genetic spectrum is very diverse, and the, these Kushans were part of that same genetic 
continuum and cultural continuum and civilizational continuum so when they when the kushans invaded india they also were able to assimilate very harmoniously into the indian population today we don't even know who has kushan ancestry who doesn't have kushan ancestry because once again their genetics were very much the same as the, those of the rest of the indian population so it's very likely that many people in northern india and western india from kashmir to punjab to haryana to western up to rajasthan to gujarat etc and sindh and all that many of these people would have some skithian ancestry some kushan ancestry and yet they all look like the rest of us right so that i hope explains why i say that the skithians and kushans were of indian origin prabud asks was maharaja shivaji really secular many of writings of his time show that he was tolerant but not secular what are my opinions okay what is secularism secularism is a foreign concept it has nothing to do with india it has nothing to do with indian culture secularism is a christian european concept secularism means the separation of the church and the state that is what secularism is and this alien concept has been forcibly force fitted into the indian context it doesn't belong in the indian context we don't need secularism we are not a secular people secularism is something that's alien to us maharaja shivaji was not secular what is secularism there was not church at the time right so today they, they try to teach us that secularism secularism means be means sarva dharma sambhav or whatever the hell that means first of all there are only four main dharmas hinduism buddhism sikhism jainism that is the only definition of dharma whatever doesn't fall in that in these four categories is essentially a dharma understand that so other religions are not dharmas those are adharmas from the very narrow definition of what dharma is dharma is the indian philosophical schools and these four basic uh, divisions that have been created hinduism buddhism jainism sikhism so dharma has always been very tolerant it has been more than tolerated it has been respectful towards everybody and shivaji maharaj was a follower of dharma right his objective was to create was to recreate hindavi swarajya in india and he was able to establish that to some extent and because of his immense work his descendants and the his successors as the peshwas etc were able to reconquer all of india all the way up to parts of afghanistan and it they were able to establish hindavi swarajya it is a pity it did not last because there was too much infighting among them and the british were able to take advantage but the fact is that shivaji was not secular secularism is not a thing in india secularism is an alien ideology we need to reject secularism the best the secularism is all about tolerance imagine you tolerating somebody at your dinner table would you would you like to be tolerated at some in someone's house would you be like would you like to be tolerated at someone's dinner table or would you like to be respected secularism is about tolerating hinduism and dharma is about respecting others so dharma is superior to this secularism nonsense india needs to reject secularism shivaji was not secular he was far greater than secular okay i hope that <laughs> explains this in 
very brief. Devraj Singh asks, was Sardar Patel a real patriot or a British stooge? Sardar Patel was the one congressman who was a real patriot. He was the one congressman who tried to push back against Mohandas Gandhi's pro-British agenda. He was the one man who tried to rein in the incomparable Sri Jawaharlal Nehru. Right? These guys, they had to tolerate Sardar Patel because he was so great and he was so well respected in India. They had to make him home minister. Actually, the Congress party had voted for Sardar Patel as the Prime Minister of India because he was the best among them. But Sri Mohandas Gandhi was able to arm twist the Congress and undemocratically have Mr. Nehru appointed as the Prime Minister of India. So the, as, the, as a compromise, they had to keep Sardar Patel as the Home Minister. And it is Sardar Patel who is responsible for the for whatever unif, unity, for geographical unity we still have in this country. Because the British hope, had hoped that India would be completely fragmented into little princely states that they could continue to lord over in some way or the other. So it is Sardar Patel, his untiring efforts that ensured that India was reunified to some extent geographically after the partition, after we lost Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, East Pakistan, Burma, Sri Lanka, everything, Nepal, Maldives, whatnot. But whatever was left, he was able to reunify it because of his untiring efforts and because of his iron will. So he was the one patriot among all these congressmen. So uh, it is. it would be very incorrect to say that he was a British stooge. He was the one person who was not a British stooge in the Congress party. He was the one real patriot. So whatever we have today in India, whatever little we have, it is all thanks to, 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 to a great extent, thanks to him. DM says, for many decades, the Olympics has been a stage of showing a state's supremacy. Hitler wanted to show so-called Aryan supremacy in 36. America wanted to defeat the Germans and prove they are superior. China is currently doing the same. Sports is mainly to increase brotherhood and friendliness be between nations. So why are the Olympics being used as a tool to promote the idea that one nation is superior to another? See, this, this concept of brotherhood and friendliness, these are nice slogans. But the world is very different, my friends. It's all about supremacy. It's all about showing how good you are. It's all about showing that you are better than others. That's the only objective of sports. The objective of sports is not brotherhood or friendliness or the spirit of cricket, whatever the hell that is. The objective of sports is to defeat the other team or the other opponent of yours and to show that you are superior. The objective of sports is to win. That is the only thing in sports. It's not to participate or to or to play fair. When you have the World Cup, what is the objective? There's only one objective, to, to lift the trophy. Whether it's football, cricket, whatever. When you have the IPL, the objective is to win the IPL, not to participate and show brotherhood. So these, this is the problem with our education system. They teach us all the wrong ideals and the wrong values. Sports is... In international competition, it is a rivalry between nations. It is to show that we are better. We are better than you. We can defeat you. 
and it is essentially war by other means we don't go and uh, engage in gladiatorial sports anymore but this is the other best alternative that we have various sports football cricket boxing mma whatever so sports is not its objective is not to increase brotherhood or friendliness it is to lift the morale of the nation it is to bring the nation together as a whole in in cheering the same in cheering the national team or the national players and it is to show that we are superior to others okay so that is the thing about sports please understand that they they i don't know i think uh, indian education and and various uh yeah it it is said that sports is about friendliness brotherhood do you ever see sports played in that manner do you see that in cricket in football i mean it's not that way so sports is its objective is to win that's the only objective to win Sovik asks I know this is not about history uh, etc in modern day country a country's progress can be judged by the olympic performance of the country why is it that india is having such good athletes with world ranks isn't able to bring gold medals yes so yesterday it was a great day uh, our guy neeraj neeraj was able to win the gold medal in javelin in the javelin throw wonderful uh but yes you are right india doesn't really do well in the olympics right so uh, continuing from what i was saying earlier uh, the real world is the the objective of of sports is to show your country's uh, competence and superiority the real world is the world of vishnu gupta chanakya it is not the world of mohandas gandhi or jawaharlal nehru mo, mo, these people they they showed us a fake version of the world ahinsa non violence idealism friendliness brotherhood all that nonsense the real world is the world of vishnu gupta chanakya please understand that and sports also follows these chanakya chanakyan principles of real politic so it's all about winning now you are right that the uh, sporting performance of a country is a very good indicator of the level of progress that a country has made it is a very good indicator of the of the uh, level of development in the country it is a very good uh, indicator of the living standards and standard of living and all that of the country so a country that consistently does well in sports one can say that it has a high standard of living because people are able to dedicate time to sports instead of trying to just survive right so it is a very good indicator of the living standards of a country now the fact that india doesn't do well in sports is very strange but it is not surprising first of all india is still a very poor country people see sports is essentially a leisure activity it is something that is a luxury and developed countries have this luxury and that's why people are people are prosperous enough that they can spend a lot of time instead of working uh, engaging in sports there are there are there is an entire infrastructure and ecosystem of sports so it is a very lucrative and viable uh, career choice in a country like india where everyone is struggling for a single job we have 5000 applications for two jobs that sort of thing in a country like india when where there is so much artificial scarcity of resources it is hard for a country like this to develop sports people because first of all people may not be able to get the right kind of facilities the right kind of coaching the right kind of training the right kind of medical uh, Uh, attention the right kind of nutrition and all that the government doesn't care the sports bodies are all corrupt it is they are run like little fiefdoms by certain
people by politicians often and the government basically in the past few years a few years there's been some progress and yet it is far from where it should be because there are see india says that it's a socialist country right if you look at the other real socialistic countries of eastern europe etc they invested enormous amounts of money into sports because they wanted to show that their political ideologies socialism etc was superior to the western ideologies and that's why one of the they wanted to show that one one of the ways of demonstrating that was sporting excellence so a, a the way a country is looked upon by outsiders it it basically depends a lot on its sporting performance if a country is good at sports outsiders of people from other countries tend to respect that country more they tend to admire that country more if it, it consistently produces sports superstars think about jamaica usain bolt people admire jamaica for for uh, producing an athlete like usain bolt it is so something that people admire and therefore a country the way a country is looked upon a country's uh, image a country's image depends a great, to a great deal on its sporting performance and the fact that india's politicians have never invested in sports and never bothered to make to improve india's sporting performance shows that they are not interested in in improving india's image internationally right so these are some of the reasons why they, they, because there is so little investment in a sporting infrastructure in sporting facilities in in supporting promising sports people that's why india is not able to bring medals and it's not about the indian genetics or anything we can we now see indian athletics have indian athletes have excellent genetics they have excellent uh, abilities and qualities from the from an athletic and sporting perspective it's just that they don't get the right exposure they don't get good coaching they don't get good facilities once somebody is able to bring a medal that's when all the support pours in you get a great a good government job as a police officer or something yeah subedar or something whatever the hell that is and you get a few crore rupees from here and there like they they're throwing it at you as if they are doing you some great favor but when a, uh, when you have a young sports person who has not yet been able to prove himself or herself there is absolutely no support whatsoever they are treated like like they are treated in a very very shabby manner and these are the reasons why india doesn't do well in sports the moment we will have proper infrastructure proper support india will overtake countries like china india has that much sporting talent in its population so it's a shame that india is is not able to showcase its natural talent and abilities it's all because of these politicians who have no interest in improving india's international image why are countries sending ships in the south china sea see it's like this the chinese want to convert the so called south south china sea into a private lake they want to cordon it off they want to build a fence around around it and they want to say this is our private lake nobody else can come in no this is unacceptable this is absolutely unacceptable then they will start taking over other parts of the world right if they, if we allow them to do this so that is the reason why powerful countries like the united states etc are doing these so called freedom of navigation operations in the so called south china sea so they are sending these flotillas of warships to go through this region 
and and demonstrate to the chinese that this region is still open to international uh, it is still international waters it it doesn't belong to you 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 don't have the right to uh, claim this as your personal private lake so that is the reason why this is being done freedom of navig- navigation operations because if we allow the chinese to grab this enormous expanse of ocean then they basically it will it will set the wrong precedent it will it will send the wrong signal to the chinese it will tell them that they can now st- start taking over other parts of the world as well so that is the primary reason why we are trying uh, countries like the us are trying to prevent the chinese from uh, executing this ridiculous land grab i think india also is involved to a very small extent once in a while in this so whenever an indian ship goes there the chinese navy tries to harass them and all that so this is an ongoing thing the chinese navy is very powerful they have a huge number of ships i think by num- if you look at the number of ships they are the number one navy now in the world in terms of the number of ships they have at their disposal naval ships and semi naval ships so that's the reason why the americans mostly are doing these freedom of navigation operations the australians are also participating in that and recently the americans also did a ridiculous freedom of navigation operation in indian waters i think it was in the lakshadweep region so this is a, a new development it it happened under the biden administration who re- don't really like india very much so so it this is what's happening right so the americans are not really allies of india in any way om asks what was the point of the us to invade afghanistan many people believe it was just to show off the raw power of the us everything the us used to do in the past was to show off its raw power it was to show that it is a it is a big dog the top dog in the world it can do anything it wants anywhere it wants now the invasion of afghanistan happened in the aftermath of the 911 terrorist attack in new york the twin tower bombings the the bombings of, of the by using aircraft civilian aircraft as bombs right so in the aftermath of this terrorist attack the americans had to quickly take some action and to show their and to appease their public to show that yes we are very serious about defending the country and we will punish the terrorists wherever they are and that's why they decided to invade afghanistan uh they claim that uh the taliban and the the al qaeda this new organization terrorist organization that came up at the time apparently so they said that it was them under the leadership of osama bin laden who had uh, perpetrated the terrorist attacks and it was to defeat them that they decided to invade afghanistan and that worked very well for pakistan because they used pakistan as the launching base the staging base for the invasion of afghanistan and the pakistan the pakistani army gained a lot from that they gained a lot of money the americans had to basically invest billions of dollars billions of dollars uh, into the in, into the war effort much of that went into the pockets of the pakistani generals they also got a lot of military hardware in uh, a, as as a by product of the american invasion of afghanistan so it worked very well for the pakistanis so that is the reason in short why the americans invaded afghanistan it was in retaliation for the 911 terrorist attacks they said it, that it was all planned and executed from afghanistan by osama bin laden and the al qaeda terrorist organization yogeshwar asks what is the what is the future of india's 
project in Afghanistan. Should we be pro-Taliban like China, Pakistan, Russia, as 85% of the area is under the Taliban now? Or should we still support Ashraf Ghani's government like the US? See, the Chinese want to make Afghanistan part of their sphere of influence. Right? The, the Chinese are very interested in continually expanding their sphere of influence. And Afghanistan is a beautiful opportunity for them to do that. And therefore, they are partnering, partnering with the Taliban. They, will, they also want to extract various minerals and resources from Afghanistan. So that's the reason why they are partnering with the Taliban. The Chinese want to use Afghanistan as their strategic backyard. It will give them strategic depth. They, in, in a future war, in, a, in, a, in an imaginary future war with India or Kashmir, they would like to use Afghanistan as a recruiting ground for terrorists and cannon fodder. People who are expendable and who can be used as cannon fodder in a war with India. So that is the reason why the Pakistanis are very much uh, interested in Afghanistan. The Taliban is a Pakistani creation. The terrorist Talibanis are Pakistanis. Even many of them are Afghans, but it is all administered from Pakistan. The bosses are in Pakistan, right? So the Taliban is a creature of Pakistan. So that's why the Pakistanis are supporting the Taliban. Russia also wants to expand its sphere of influence. If you recall in the late 70s, early 80s, they invaded Afghanistan and that did not work out very well, but they have always been interested in Afghanistan and in having some influence in Afghanistan as well. So the Russians regard the Central Asian region as their natural sphere of influence and they want to expand it to some extent. They are right now in a quasi-alliance with the Chinese, so they are also trying to uh, further their interests in Afghanistan and that's why they are supporting the Taliban. Now, what are India's interests? India's national interest lies in a stable neighborhood, right? India would like to have peace and stability on the northern borders, which means that India would like Tibet to be free, in which case it will be a very friendly country for India. India would also like the terrorist nation Pakistan to cease existing and it should be replaced by smaller countries that are independent and friendly towards India. And India would like Afghanistan also to be peaceful. Right? So this is India's objective. It should be India's objective if India has any sense. And therefore there is no point in India supporting the Taliban in any manner whatsoever. It is an organization which is a terrorist organization. It is inimical to India. It regards India as the enemy. Recently they killed some guy, some journalist, an Indian journalist. They killed him and mutilated his body because they discovered that he was Indian. The Taliban did that in Afghanistan. So, And that guy was a Muslim. So it tells you that despite him being a Muslim, they did that to him just because he was India, Indian. It shows the Taliban's hatred for India. It shows that in the future, in the long term, they could pose a threat to India in conjunction with the Chinese and the Pakistanis. And therefore, I see no point whatsoever in India supporting the Taliban in any way whatsoever. India's objective, right now Afghanistan seems to be, a, seems to be very unfortunately, very sadly, at present, in the short term, it seems to be a lost case to some extent. I hope that whatever parts of Afghanistan are still free, remain free. I really hope so. But 
the as you said the taliban is in control of about 80 or 85% of the country it it will remain that way it looks like with the help of the chinese and the pakistanis but india's long term objective or the or the fast over the next 5 to 10 years should be to break up pakistan peacefully and to see and to ensure that the taliban comes to an end and to ensure that afghanistan is peaceful again stable again and overall long term prosperous again and it has a proper government which actually represents the will of the afghan people if that were to happen if india could engineer that then india will have long term peace and stability on the northern borders so that has to be india's long term objective and therefore there is no point being pro taliban we have to be pro uh, like you said ashraf ghani's government dev says before 2014 israel had always pushed for good relations with india but the indian government were not in- interested after 2014 pm modi has increased ties with israel israel helped us in the 1970 war uh, 71 war kargil war etc my question is that such a long relationship we have with jews is, is it possible that in the future they might ditch us because we have seen many instances when pakistan was on the verge of accepting israel etc israel was ready to sell weapons to pakistan and some history of india and jews relationship look india and israel are very different culturally okay the israelis uh, they follow judaism which is an abrahamic religion their culture is very very different from our culture in india from the dharmic culture it's like oil and water it's like day and night very different cultures so we have nothing in common culturally but we have many of the same enemies right and that's why india and israel are uh, such close to some extent close partners today there is a great deal of warmth and camaraderie and a very cordial relationship there is to some extent a uh, military cooperation etc we are building certain missiles etc the barak missile and various other, other things together there is a, a significant amount of cooperation and coordination in the intelligence front as well the israelis are very good in technology they have ensured that they have invested a great deal in their startup startup ecosystem in their technology industry and that that's why they have world class weapons manufacturing industries and all that and they are selling some of these weapons to india as well right now the thing is that the israelis also had a very good relationship with the chinese they were very interested in developing that relationship further but the americans forced israel to stop partnering and uh, cooperating with the chinese they wanted to sell defense equipment to the chinese the chinese were very interested in in israeli technology military technology and all that and the israelis were very happy with that right because the the chinese have the money that the israelis want so the israelis were very happy to partner with the chinese despite knowing that the chinese are india's enemies right so it is all about real politic every country will do whatever is best for them there is no cultural affinity between israel, india and israel so we have to understand that if you look at the israeli media they portray they they are not very uh, they don't have that sort of warmth towards india indians are like hardcore fans of israel indians see israel and india as blood brothers or something the israelis don't see india that way right and the israeli media is not hostile i would say towards india but there are many misportrayals etc i think it was the jerusalem times or somebody who uh, was uh, 
propagating that fake that fake story of uh, the so called martyrdom martyrdom of saint thomas in india there is this fake story going about that this guy saint thomas came to india and the indian brahmins murdered him or something right so this story is very much uh, popular in israel which is completely fake there is no evidence that this individual ever came to india and yet uh, the israeli media seems to be intent on pushing the story forward so these are some instances some examples of the way the israeli media looks upon india it is uh, it doesn't have the kind of warmth that india has towards the israelis so we have to remember that this is merely a a medium term strategic geopolitical partnership if if in the future some other uh, if the, in the future the chinese uh, were to be able to reach out to the israelis and acquire their arms and ammunition and weapon and weapons and technology the israelis will be very happy to oblige so this is not an exclusive and unconditional relationship the israelis have their own national interest and they will look out for their national interest in whatever way is necessary and we also have to be realistic about this israel and india have very good relations it's a good thing the we have nothing against the jews we like them which is good but we should not be under the illusion that they are our blood brothers and it is an unconditional friendship it is not the case so please understand that Hari Krishnan says asks did too much influence of the so called gandhian philosophy leftist teachings and the nehruvian socialistic regime grow away india's fighting spirit it is mostly the influence of the gandhian philosophy that has caused this indians have a very strange unrealistic view of the world sports is about brotherhood and friendship india's national motto is satyameva jayate but india's politicians act in the exact opposite manner india's education system is full of lies so where is satyameva jayate it is actually asatyameva jayate if you look at india india's education system the way it distorts history the the false things it teaches children it's all about falsehoods and distortions and lies so the policies of the indian government the indian regime even today to some extent are the opposite of india's national motto so indians believe in a fictitious fairy tale make believe version of the world because of the education system because of the media because of what the politicians teach us and it is all because of what gandhi did gandhi and philosophy we believe it is all it is all real ahimsa etc so here is the thing gandhi said that ahimsa is the number one thing but his interpretation of ahimsa was very wrong right he said that, see here's the thing about non violence gandhi said be weak because non violence is best i'll tell you something weakness is the greatest sin you can imagine and non violence is not a virtue if you are weak take the rabbit for example the rabbit we love rabbits right very cute little animals so rabbits we know they are non violent is it some great virtue for a rabbit to be non violent non-violence is something that is naturally inherent in the weak people in the weak in, in, in those who are weak they are simply not capable of violence 
and therefore if you are weak it is not some great virtue to be non violent if you are weak your only option is to be non violence the thing is that weakness invites violence from those who are strong and therefore weakness being weak is the greatest sin that is imaginable because it invites it, it invites hinsa weakness gives rise to hinsa weakness is the enemy of ahinsa if you want real ahinsa if you want real non violence you have to develop and cultivate strength and power and when you develop and cultivate strength and power you become strong and powerful and that ensures that ahinsa prevails and the and the gandhian philosophy is the opposite of that always be passive always be weak no matter what they do to you don't retaliate so he turned india and the people of india into a bunch of losers and today we have leaders who worship gandhi so this is the problem in india it is the indian of gandhian philosophy that has destroyed india's fighting spirit india has always been a, a nation of winners and a nation of warriors it is this one individual gandhi and those who worship him that have destroyed india's fighting spirit today the people of india are all living in a fake la la land they think ahinsa is the great thing gandhi was a saint the world is full of brotherhood brotherhood and bhaichara and what not the real world is the world of vishnu gupta chanakya please remember that so it is gandhi and his philosophy that have destroyed india's fighting spirit we need to revive india's fighting spirit by rejecting those who worship gandhi and by rejecting gandhian philosophy okay parakeet says i am not a fan of the british as you said that they absolutely torched humiliated annihilated india and indians but they did build railways and they did do public reforms so what was their agenda you are right uh, they did build railways they did do what they called were public reforms they tried to reform indian society and remove all the backwardness from indian society and all that right that's what the british did let's take some other examples today the pakistanis are building roads in balochistan they are they may also be building railways and some public works are they doing it for the sake of the people of balochistan or are they creating an infrastructure of extraction because balochistan is 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 rich in natural resources and other things and the pakistanis want to extract that out of balochistan and that is why they are building the roads and the other infrastructure so this infrastructure they are building is for their own benefit it is not for the benefit of the people of balochistan today the chinese are building the so called cpec china pakistan economic corridor roads railways all that why are the chinese doing it are they doing it to benefit pakistan or are they doing it to give themselves access to the indian ocean and another to give them another inf- piece of infrastructure that can uh, ferry materials to china and bypass the malacca strait and the other choke points so the chinese are building this infrastructure for themselves for their own benefit it is not for the benefit of the people of pakistan right the chinese are building roads railways dams and what not in tibet are they doing it for the people of tibet no this is the infrastructure of occupation 
This is the infrastructure of extraction. It is all for the benefit of Beijing. It is not for the benefit of the people of Tibet. The Chinese say that they have liberated Tibet from serfdom and from the evils of the Dalai Lama. And they have liberated them from the evils and the regressiveness of Dharma and Buddhism and all that. Right? They say that the invasion of Tibet was the emancipation of the Tibetan people. And they have uh, uh, institutionalized lots of public reforms in the society of the Tibet, in the in Tibetan society. Well, the, the Chinese agenda is to show that their invasion and occupation is actually of some benefit to the people of Tibet. That's how they want to justify their invasion and occupation of Tibet. And that's why they are doing the so-called reforms in the society of Tibet. Similarly, the British build ra- built railways in India. They build roads in India. It was the infrastructure of occupation, the infrastructure of extraction. Their only agenda in India, their primary agenda in India, was to extract all the wealth out of India. All the resources, all the gold, all the coal, all the silver, all the wealth. And you need roads and railways for that. If you want to extract materials from the interior parts of India. And that's why they built ports like Bombay, now Mumbai, like like Fort St. George or whatever it was, Kolkata, like Madras. They built num- a number of ports. They built, they built roads and railways. It was the infrastructure of occupation and extraction. And the British had to justify their occupation of India. And that's why they portrayed Hinduism as evil and regressive. And that's why they did all these so-called public reforms that we have banned Vidori marriage, we have banned Sati, for example, and we have banned various other things. And we are trying to reform Indian society and reform Hinduism. I'll tell you something, my friends. Hinduism doesn't need reforms. Hinduism is the greatest. Dharma is the greatest culture and, and civilizational culture there is in the world. It doesn't need any reforms. Anybody who says they want to reform Hinduism is the enemy of Hinduism. Hinduism does not need any reforms. The Indian culture does not need reforms. It needs revitalization. It needs rejuvenation. It needs these outside influences to go away. So that is what's needed. The the British tried to portray Hinduism as regressive, as evil, as backward. They themselves instituted these four divisions in society the so-called caste system. Imagine if today, when a child is born, we did not have to write down the caste, which is mandatory. Imagine when you go to school, you don't have to write your caste. Imagine in the government forms and everything, hospitals, whatever, you don't have to write the caste. The so-called caste system will disappear overnight. It is the government of India which is perpetrating, which, which is which is perpetuating the so-called fake caste system, which the British started. So all these public reforms the British did were were just to justify their illegal occupation of India. It was to serve as a blanket cover-up of the incredible plunder they were doing of India's wealth. So that is the truth about the so-called, all these things they built for India. The railways were, were built with Indian money, with Indian labor. The roads were built with Indian money, with Indian labor. All these ports and everything was built with Indian money, with Indian labor. But they say that they have given us all these things. 
please wake up my friends please the the truth is that they were illegal barbaric brutal occupiers of india they killed more than 100 million people in india more than 100 million people in repeated artificial famines they were the brutal barbaric occupiers of india they are worse than nazi germany by at least an order of magnitude minimum so we have to see this chapter of history for what it really is so you need to edu- to gain an education outside of the education system you need to think critically and be aware of the fact that whatever you have been taught is mo- is mostly lies so that my friends is the truth of what the british did in india aditya asks how does north korea make money and maintain its economy despite being closed to the world well it's not a completely closed economy they have manufacturing they have raw materials industries and all that and they do a great deal of trade with outside countries i think north korea's largest trading partner is to no one's great surprise it's china north korea is essentially a chinese puppet state the chinese are happy to have this dictator dictatorial regime at their border instead of a democratic korea which would be under american influence and they use the north korean regime as something that destabilize that tries to destabilize the west from time to time by doing these missile tests ballistic missile tests and nuclear explosions and and all those things so their greatest benefit benefactory for north korea is the chinese and their greatest trading partner is the chinese so they export raw materials and some goods and all that and they also do a, a significant amount of tra- trade with south korea as well so the south koreans maintain a reasonably good trade relationship with the north koreans uh, they do import and export certain goods and materials and india also i think accounts for about 3% of north korea's overall trade relationship with other, with other countries so it does have trade it is not completely close to the world but it is very tightly controlled and regulated by the north korean regime under mr kim jong un so that is how north korea makes money i believe they also it is alleged that they are also involved in drug trafficking and some other things i am not very sure how true that is but i have read some reports uh, that speak about this so that in short is how north korea is able to make money i think the currency uh, they value the most is the us dollar the north korean won doesn't really have much value there so that is in in short how it maintains its economy and how it makes money okay two questions pragyan asks are pashtuns descendants of turkic tribes or are they the descendants of iranic tribes and dhruvik asks there are many similarities between the pashtun attan dance and the traditional gujarati garba is there any connection so to answer the first question the pashtuns are neither the descendants of turks nor are they the descendants of iranic tribes the pashtuns are an extension of the north indian population their genetics are the same their culture used to be the same the pashto pashto language is more indian than iranian the pronunciation and the accents are more indian are more north indian or indian than they are either turkic or or persian so it is closest to india linguistically ethnically and before the islamization also culturally 
So before the Turkic invasion of of India, which included Afghanistan, before that invasion, before those invasions happened, Afghanistan was a Hindu Buddhist country. The Pashtuns were Hindus and Buddhists. The uh, when the Turkic invasions happened, that time Buddhism was at its peak in Afghanistan, and that entire thing was destroyed very quickly. So I think Afghanistan was one of the first regions of India that fell to the Turkic invasions. But until the 1500s, the Afghans the Pashtuns saw themselves as natives of India. They fought with the Indians to resist the Turkic invasions under Akbar and Babur, etc. Right? And the last Hindu Indian king in India, he was basically the king of Kabul. But he was coronated in Delhi. He was Hemchandra Vikramaditya, Hemu. And his army was more than 90% Pashtun. So the Pashtuns are Indians. Today, they most likely don't see themselves as Indians. But genetically, ethnically, they are Indians. And linguistically as well. Now, the second question is, there are many similarities between the Pashtun Attan dance and the traditional Gujarati Garba. Is there any connection? Let me show you a couple of video clips of the Pashtun Attan dance. Here is clip number one. Let me remove this thing one second. Here. Okay, here is clip number one. So that is a, a, num- a bunch of Afghan ladies, Pashtun ladies dancing the national dance, the Attan dance. As you can see, the music, the beats are very much Indian. Right? If you should see the dresses, it's very, it's almost the same as an Indian dress. It's very similar to the dresses that ladies would wear in Kashmir or in Rajasthan or in Gujarat or in many other parts of India. Very nice, beautiful, colorful dresses. So that is the actual culture of Afghanistan. Let me show you one more clip of Afghan men doing the pashtu doing the attan dance so once again you see that the music is very similar to the music that you have in the gujarati Da, the, what do you call it? The Garba dance or the Dandiya dance, right? So it is very clear that the Pashtun culture, the Afghan culture is very closely related to the culture a thousand kilometers to the south in Gujarat. The dance is almost the same. The music is almost the same. And the dresses, at least the ladies, they are also very similar. Now, so it's, so it's clear that the Pashtuns, the, they are an extension of the Indian population. They have still somehow tried to hang on to some remnants of their original culture and it's visible in the Attan dance. Now, the the strange thing is that the Gujarati uh, Garba dance or the Dandiya dance, it is what remains of an ancient Rajput martial art. Let me demonstrate this to you with a very short clip. So that is how the Gujarati uh, Garba dance and the Dandiya dance originated. 
it originated in a rajput in the lost rajput martial art of sword fighting as you saw in that clip it is very much sword fighting moves that gave rise to this to this dance so that is the ancient connection between the ancient lost rajput martial art of sword fighting between the gujarati dandiya and garba dance and the afghan pashtun attan dance it is all the same it is part of the same family isn't that fascinating okay next question aditya asks why is it getting so hard for the world to get out of the covid situation it's because politicians are enjoying the extra power they have now acquired for themselves the entire world has been under a lockdown for much of the past year and a half i believe in toronto in canada the city was under a lockdown for more than a year a hard lockdown people were like they got sick of it some people even escaped to other places and in other parts of the world also we have these ridiculous lockdowns now we have the vaccine all we have to ensure is that people get vaccinated as quickly as possible so that's what needs to happen the world's economy needs to reopen and these lockdowns need to end it is destroying people's lives it is destroying people's livelihoods but politicians as you know they love power so in various parts of the world across the globe you have these ridiculous oppressive lockdowns that are still very much in force you saw in the olympics yesterday when neeraj chopra won the gold medal he was doing his uh, javelin throw without a mask on and uh, once the results were declared once it was clear who once wins the gold and the silver and the bronze these uh, javelin throw guys they all hugged each other without mask on but then when they were on the podium they had to wear masks how stupid is that so this is the kind of nonsense that's going on in the world right now what needs to happen is vaccinate 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 as many people as you can as quickly as you can and reopen the world reopen the economy it's been too long so that's what needs to happen i believe from the data that i have seen thus far over the past year i believe that the indian vaccine is the most effective vaccine and that's why the western world is trying to reject it it's trying to ensure that the indian vaccine doesn't make it make its way into the us and in into europe so that is their problem they don't want a good vaccine that is their problem what india needs to do is vaccinate at a steady pace over the next few months maybe one year vaccinate the majority of the population and we need to end the lockdowns it's high time india's economy reopens it's high time india goes back to business it is affecting people's livelihoods it is affecting people's lives people's lives have been destroyed because of the, of the lockdown not just in india but all over the world this this has gone too far it is time for the world to reopen so the reason it is getting so hard for the world to get out of the situation is because politicians love power when they get more power to control people's lives they want to hang on to that power so we need good leadership in the world across the world in north america south america europe asia oceania oceania everywhere we need good leadership and we need the world to reopen now ishwara asks what is the strength of a country's passport how is it determined and what is the strength of india's passport the strength of a country's passport is very simple it 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 is it depends on how many countries is a certain passport able to access without visas so it's all about visa free travel it's about the freedom of travel some countries uh 
are able to uh, certain passports are uh, given the privilege of visa free travel to lots of countries other passports don't have such a much of a privilege let me try and google it and show it to you uh, passport rankings right passport rankings one second so there is something called a passport index global passport ranking let me share my screen with you so here is the global passport ranking the henley passport index so it basically ranks passport on the basis of how many countries are they able to access without visas so japan's passport is ranked number 1 because it is able to uh, access it 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 has the privilege of visa free, tra free travel to 193 countries singapore in the singapore passport has the access to visa free free travel to 192 countries and so on so the united states is number 7 with visa free travel to 187 countries and so on if we look over here then you will find that india where is india india is over here it is number 90 in the world the indian passport has the privilege of visa free travel to 58 countries so if you hold an indian passport you can go without a visa to 58 countries or you may get visa on arrival even that works so it's either visa free travel or visa on arrival but in the case of japan they have visa free travel to 193 countries so they don't have to go to some country's embassy and apply for a visa and wait for 3 weeks or whatever and pay some money they can just take their passport hop on a plane and go wherever they want and most likely every country gives them visa free or travel or visa on arrival so that is the strength of a passport it tells you how prestigious that passport is how and how uh, influential a country is so a country that has more influence is able to uh, to get this sort of visa free access to other countries to more countries a country like india has only access to how many 58 was it yeah so it is all about the strength of a country it's about the country's influence the country's power the strength of the country's diplomacy and so on it tells you overall what is the stage stature of a country in the international community so clearly india's stature isn't great japan's is the best japan is the country that is liked the most all over the world based on this passport index so that is what we mean by the strength of a passport Utsav asks if Nehru was a British puppet then why was India aligned with the USSR rather than the British or the US good question good question so uh, mr nehru was a great uh, great lover of the british he was an anglophile he said i am an englishman englishman by by culture i think that's what he used to say but he aligned himself with the USSR instead of the uk so what happened was after partition the reason why the british partition india was to ensure that there is a part of india which is which is uh, geopolitically aligned with them and that was pakistan so the moment pakistan was geopolitically aligned with the uk india basically was left behind and india's foreign policy was the opposite of that but the real reason why mr nehru was more inclined to aligning with the ussr was because he was a socialist 
he was a believer in fabian socialism fabian socialism was one of the most uh there are different flavors of socialism there is hard socialism and there is this thing called this flavor called fabian socialism fabian socialism is a belief in very slow gradual change and progress they don't want to do anything fast they want everything to be incremental slow change slow progress so that is fabian socialism the uh, soviets hated that they criticized it very strongly leon trotsky wrote articles criticizing fabian socialism saying that it's too ineffective it is too mediocre it doesn't really affect any real change in the world but mr nehru was greatly enamored with with fabian socialism and the country that he found was the most uh ideologically similar to his was the ussr so he was a great admirer of the ussr the kind of industrialization they were trying to achieve and all that and the things they had already achieved by that point so he wanted to emulate that in india and he did not like democracy because he himself was appointed prime minister undemocratically by mr gandhi so he was not a believer in democracy and and all that and and also he was not a believer in capitalism he was a believer in socialism and very slow incremental change and so that's what he did to india the nehruvian rate of growth india grew at a very slow glacial pace in the 1960s 70s etc it is all thanks to mr nehru's policies so it is because of his love for socialism that he aligned himself and the country with the ussr rather than with the british or with the americans the americans were very interested in investing in india they were they wanted india to be a permanent member of the un security council mr nehru was interested in, in mediocrity that's why he rejected that and that's why he aligned with the ussr so that is in short about why this happened i think i should do i need to do a more detailed analysis of mr nehru and his contributions to india so i will do that in a separate video Siddhant asks on what basis was it decided that which portion of land would to, would be released to form Pakistan so this was done on religious grounds the british knew that they had a map of the demographics of india so whichever region was um, muslim majority was uh, given to pakistan and whatever regions were non muslim majorities were given to india to some extent of course places like silet and the chittagong hill tracts were given to east pakistan even though they were not muslim majority so i don't know why india accepted all this nonsense but it was all decided on the basis of religious demographics and these lines were drawn by what's his name radcliffe cyril radcliffe who was a british lawyer he had no background in cartography or geopolitics or anything he was just a lawyer so this lawyer who did not really have any understanding of this matter came to india and he was given just 5 weeks to draw the maps to draw the lines in the maps and that's what he did and that's what mr nehru and mr gandhi accepted so it was all done by a person who had no understanding of this and it was done on the basis of religious demographics muslims and non muslims that's all that's how it was decided which part of india was to be given to pakistan okay that brings me to an end to these questions let me take some of your live chat questions okay what do we have 
if you have any questions ask me now in the live chat vihan says it is said that maharana pratap wore ridiculously heavy armor around 280 kilograms is this true please answer i don't think it is practical for anybody to wear armor that is that heavy 280 kilograms just imagine how much it would hamper you in battle even olympic weightlifters find it very hard to lift that sort of weight so it is completely impractical for any human being to wear armor that is that heavy armor is supposed to be a second skin ideally you should not even feel that it's there that's why people wear chain mail the european knights used to have wear very heavy armor 50 60 kilos and they used to ride on horses it was very cumbersome it was very impractical but the more if effect if efficient armor is chain mail which is like a cloth which is which is clothing made up of uh interlinked chain mail and that is very uh, good armor so it is almost like a shirt that you wear so i don't think it is at all practical for a person no matter how tall or strong he is to wear armor that that heavy even his horse would be would be very badly affected by that so i personally do not believe that this is the case i am sure he was a very strong and tall person i i've heard he was like 7 feet tall or or over 6 feet tall that's possible yes but this story seems to be an embellished legend okay anything else do we have other questions pranay asks why does india not bring bring money back from britain that was looted approximately 45 trillion how do we bring it back where is that money today that money was in the hands of certain families those families their descendants are spread across europe and america today that wealth is no longer in one place we don't we don't even know how to trace that wealth we know that overall the uh, standards of living in europe and america rose enormously because of the colonization of india and the colonization of africa because of the loot of india and africa but that wealth has been long since redistributed all across europe and north america to most uh, to a great extent so there is no way to trace that wealth and bring it back and secondly even if we were able to trace the wealth how would we do it would do we go and invade the whole world so it is not practical we know that they looted at least 45 trillion dollars worth of money in today's dollars from india but there is no way we can bring that back it is like three times their annual gdp in the uk so it is not even practical for them if they, even if they wanted to give it back to give it back so it is something that happened in history it is gone the best we can do is to learn the lessons of history and ensure this never happens again that's all we can do at this point rishikesh asks why don't we find marvelous sculptures in harappa well harappa is in pakistan i don't know what's happening there the uh indus valley region is just one small portion of the harappan era of our civilization the entire geographical extent was much of pakistan parts of afghanistan kashmir 
पंजाब हरियाणा राजस्थान पार्ट्स ऑफ वेस्टर्न यूपी एंड गुजरात एंड नॉर्थ महाराष्ट्र इट्स एन इनॉर्मस जियोग्राफिकल एक्सटेंट एंड वी हैव नॉट इवन एक्सकवेटेड वन परसेंट ऑफ द आर्कियोलॉजिकल साइट्स इन दिस रीजन एंड देर फॉर इफ वी वे टू डू दैट आई एम श्योर वी वुड फाइंड लॉट्स ऑफ मार्वलस थिंग्स स्कल्पचर्स एंड आर्ट वर्क एंड वॉट नॉट वी वुड एक्चुअली डिस्कवर हु वी रियली आर if we were to do this so some day in the future perhaps perhaps india will the indian government will invest in rediscovering our history and then we will find what's what's in there i'm sure there will be lot to find okay let me take one more question Dongar Singh Chauhan asks how was the caste system given by the british the british tried to understand india's jati varna system it was too complicated for them so they simplified it and they assigned four categories and and they did it bureaucratically so if you were to register for, with the government for any job or anything you would have to give your caste your caste in one of these four categories only and that's how it became official and that is what is still continued today so that is how they created these four artificial divisions india indian society was way more complicated and more complex than that we have the jati varna system it is your ancestral occupation and your ancestral lineages it is a very complex system right so the british simplified that because they could not understand it and they themselves created these four divisions i will next time find an article that shows this but this is basically in short how the british themselves instituted the caste system which our government still continues for the sake of votes because now we have reservations and the more reservations you give the more votes you get so that's what's going on in india today all right my friends it brings us to an end of this session thank you for your questions and i will see you very soon i will see you in next weeks sessions take care bye